Welcome to Afterthoughts, everybody. I have a lot of anxiety about hosting this time, but it's not because of the actual hosting. It's because of the movie we saw. Um, before we can talk about it, I just want to identify some of the voices that are sitting with us. Uh, you just heard Michael Dixon laugh. What's up, uh, John Garcia? Is that your name? I think that's my name. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure what's what anymore. <laughs> Um, and then we have a, a guest and a, a longtime listener of our podcast. Uh, it is Gino Hino, a.k.a. Matthew, a.k.a. Gino. How you doing? Cool. Thanks for uh, having me on the podcast. Uh, excited to chat with you guys on this really strange movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's quite a journey. Um, so excited. But, we're, uh, uh, we're, we're pumped to have our uh, longtime listener, first time caller on the, uh, on the show. That's tonight. another aspect <laughs> of me having anxiety. <laughs> I don't want to shatter right. the illusion of how cool I may be. But then again, I think I do that like every time we have an episode recording. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, the movie we're talking about, hence all the anxiety discussion here, is 2023's Bo is Afraid. She's very pretty. That type of girl you're attracted to? I am so sorry for what your daddy passed down to you. I wanted a child. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. Do you ever wish that she was dead? What? Bo? Are you on your way? I'm on my way. I just. It's not safe, is it? I sincerely doubt that. I'm sure you'll do the right thing, sweetheart. Bo is Afraid is the story of one man who has way too much uh, in the way of anxiety for his mother. Uh, his mother dies and he has to go home to see her. And all the way through this odyssey, just scene after scene and frame after frame of packed anxiety and this weird blend of Zucker Brothers comedy in the background, Charlie <laughs> Kaufman meta timeline shit, uh, and a bunch of other things that Ari Aster weaves in masterfully. I'm not entirely, I, I honestly, it, that's the synopsis of the story. Just Bo battling against his demons, I suppose, but not a lot of battles, a lot of running away and tumbling through woods and just trying to figure out what the fuck's going on, really. <laughs> I loved this movie. I love weird shit. I'm very into... What, really? Uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> Who did that? Uh, I, I love, like, the surreal journeys that uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky provide with El Topo and the Holy Mountain. I also love the meta, spitefully introspective features of Charlie Kaufman. I like anything that's trying to explore this realm of human anxiety and how it builds up and how it can defeat you or how you can overcome it doesn't really matter to me as long as the director has the actual creative voice and control to express it a proper way like this movie definitely doesn't have studio notes anywhere in it um and i'm as unhinged and wild as that is and how like it pumps into kind of the runtime and can cause some pacing issues i'm just a huge fan of some director letting loose and getting their vision out there I mean, obviously with the uh, Scorsese, like any of his movies go well over like the three hour mark now. And I think that we're all the better for it. So I'm just like, hey, let me have an experience I can dip my feet into. It's got good score to it. The acting is fantastic. The disorientation factor of it is off the charts. I was constantly trying to keep up with what was happening and when and why. And it just kept me guessing the entire way through and then had me sitting in silence at the end. So I really loved it. Uh, I, I want to kick it over to Gino first. 
Yep, I thought, uh, sure. I mean, um, oh, this, it's like, where do you even start? It's such a, it's such a journey you take throughout this movie. Um, first, I think, I was, as, as I was watching it, I was thinking like, I mean, this is like a terrible tendency, but it's like, what star rating do I give this movie on Letterboxd? Because I'm going to have to log <laughs> this later. <laughs> I fall and, into that trap um, all the time too, yeah. And then the second thought is like, where do I rank this in his movies compared to Midsommar and then also Hereditary? I'm, I'm sure we're going to get to that later. Um, but my first initial reaction is like, like you said, John, like after it's finished, you just sit there in silence and you're just like, what the fuck did I just watch? I'm like so exhausted. I'm drained. I'm like, I'm just so in this state of shock almost when I'm finishing it. And um, I was watching an interview with Ari Aster and he says that the the experience he got when watching an IMAX was like watching with fresh eyes for the first time after seeing it, like after editing it and watching it over and over again for God knows how long. So I also saw an IMAX and, and I felt, oh, and the other thing I wanted to mention there is that Ari also mentions how um, when watching it, he wants you to see it as rather an experience rather than trying to dissect it as you watch it. So I took that advice. And I didn't try to overanalyze it. And I definitely got the experience from it. But, you know, the day or two after I watched it, I think I was starting to think, well, what am I going to take away from this film? And there is definitely experience, kind of like riding a roller coaster. And you think back and like, well, that was fun. But then um, I, I, I'm still trying to form my thoughts, I guess. I'm like, the, I think the part that gets me the most is the guilt part that comes through. Uh, mm -hmm. It's like pretty, pretty strong. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's, this is the part that I think either is or is not relatable to people. It's kind of like a binary one or zero. And for me, it's the one. So um, that's my first initial thought. And, and there's like so many themes. Um, but yeah, I'll pass it on to uh, Dixon here and see what he thinks. Cool. Yeah. So John and I saw this in IMAX. Um get like five or six days ago and then i saw it again last night because i was like i just need to i need to get some more clarity around this like there's when you first watch it it's like you know you feel like you're kind of being pulled along you're like what the fuck is going on with all these crazy set pieces and stuff and then like watching it again it's still it's still that experience but i, I felt like i was able to piece it together a little bit better on a second watch um I think what Ari Aster is doing in this movie is creating just a, a feeling, right? And it's it's a three-hour-long movie, and it it really is just capturing that anxiety and that guilt that you feel, um, you know, when your parents are, like, trying to guilt you into, like, doing something and come home for the weekend or something. You're like, oh, yeah, I probably should, but I don't know if I really want to. Um, as a single only son of a single mother um it i definitely like got the uh you know the guilt that ari aster is going for here and you know that um he talks about uh in the opening kind of therapy scene of the movie when joaquin phoenix uh as Bo is sitting with his therapist and his therapist asks him like do you ever wish your mother was dead and he's like what no i would never i would never say that and he's like well it's like you can think that and not want it at all. And like, you can have these ideas in your head that are contrasting and, uh, you know, we're here to talk through that. And I think like, that's a, an interesting idea in a way that, you know, like a lot of times 
grown children think about their parents and it's like, well, you know, yeah, like I, I want to see them and, you know, but it's like oftentimes it's like, yeah, that would be fun to do. But like, there are other things that I want to do too. And I know that like me coming home is like the best thing that's going to happen to like, that's going to be my, my parents' favorite thing that's going to happen to them over the next, you know, few months in life for me, it'll be like one of the things that I did. And, you know, there's just kind of a different dynamic there in kind of the enjoyment that you get out of the relationship, I think, when you're an adult child. And Ari Aster does a great job of capturing that that feeling in the movie. I think like any complaints I had, I think Bo is is a very thin character. Like there's really not much going on there except for his crippling anxiety. And that's interesting, but I was almost wanting a little bit more depth there to that character to, um, you know, kind of be able to identify with him a little bit more aside from just this very singular aspect of, of what he was going through. Having said that, I think that Ari Aster did a great job of conveying that feeling given those kind of constraints that he placed upon himself. Um, I think Phoenix is good in it. He does a good job of getting you to care about what he's going through. It's not, you know, the most complex role that Joaquin Phoenix has ever played. Like, I think he's done uh, better work in, in a lot of different roles, but I, I think he's good in the movie and, and makes you kind of care about what he's going through. Um, the film goes through kind of four different acts, and I think they're all interesting in their own ways. I felt like the second act with kind of like the, the new parents, you know, after the injury was a little probably the weakest one for me. Um, I loved the animation sequence in the in the woods in the third act and like and then the final act is just fucking wild Bonkers. like yeah. yeah just absolutely insane um and the first act is really interesting too and probably the funniest of the three I think um so yeah I mean I mean overall I liked this a lot I think um you know Ari Aster is is just a fascinating filmmaker and um loved watching this and and you know seeing his vision for this actually i i looked up recently before i came over here i was like what what's what's going on with aster and his parents like what, what's the deal there and uh it, apparently he has a great relationship with his parents they're both alive and he said he had like a super great childhood and i don't believe him uh the 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 art form speaks for itself i think it's one of those yeah. things where i kind of disagree about Bo being a thin character i don't feel like Bo is a thin character but this might oh, be one of those inter- in, in, one of those cases where we've had this discussion during when dune came out uh dixon and i talked about how oscar isaac had nothing to do because he just shows up mm. in that role but I also was like, well, when you need somebody who has like really subtle expressions or can control a certain range of like an emotion, you bring in like one heavy hitter actor, even if it's for like five minutes, you'd bring in De Niro or something and try to get them to, to do that one thing and do it really fucking well. And I felt like with this, Ari Aster just said, I just need somebody who can conjure every form of anxiety possible in any situation and pulled Joaquin Phoenix into it. Um, cause he's played so many different characters that have to be disoriented or lost or, um, really fearful or mousy, like all of these different ranges of how scared somebody can get. And so certain scenes where he is freaking out about something on screen or the, the anxiety is there. I felt like it was an extra layer of his character. Bo is not a reliable narrator. No, um, no, definitely not. This is him processing the world. And so it added this extra layer of what is the actual world around him supposed to be like when he is not in it? Because everybody he talks to is this maximalist representation of his anxiety from the suburbs to the forest to the inner city and finally his mom's house. 
But yeah, Gino, what did you think about Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal and Bo as a character? I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards what Dixon's saying in that uh, it feels like a thin character. And I think this is kind of like a through line throughout all his movies. Um, his movies are more so, I lean towards the experience side. And when I'm thinking about Midsommar, I'm thinking about Hereditary, like I'm taking away feelings rather than some sort of deep character study. Um, so what Dixon says definitely resonates with me for sure. Um, but that said, though, like Walking Phoenix is like incredible performance. It's like it, you can't uh, say it's bad in any way. Like no, no, what, definitely What's surprising not. as well is that like I thought like people would complain about how many times he starts crying or bursting into tears, and I, I and, no, and no one's really brought that up. Um, like it's not overly melancholic. It's not overly acted. It's it's really like. It's really stunning, and uh, it also made me think, like, is this going to be a contender for, like, Best Actor next year at the Academy Awards? Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I, uh, you know, obviously A24 did really well with Everything Everywhere All at Once last year, but it, I feel like a lot of people are going to not respond to this movie the way, the way they did to that one, and I, I imagine <laughs> yeah. they'll probably have a harder time pushing this one for awards, but I would definitely you know be supportive of that if they did uh, also production design i feel like they could definitely oh, win something yeah. there did you tell me that somebody said this is the anti everything everywhere all at once yeah i saw that on twitter <laughs> from some, some critic i forget who it was Brilliant. So like yeah that makes sense <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> absolutely yeah i guess it, it does make sense that it's not a character study you're there's not a whole lot to Bo beyond like the relationship with his mother you're picking up on i think it's more of just like Ari does a really good job of giving you unsettling feelings in the movies you're watching. And in this one, it was like comedically unsettling. There was a lot of action. Like I kind of mentioned earlier, um, there's like a Zucker brothers style to the foreground background action of this movie where like people were being like strangled and murdered in the background, but somehow it's comedic mm -hmm. and kind of funny despite there being like very real anxiety around that. Like, I think two people on the IMDb page are credited as Gouger and the Gouged. And <laughs> <laughs> just like that's kind of a testament to Ari just wanted like this kind of violence in the background or and like with hereditary too, there are a lot of scenes where people stand in the background and stare at the camera and trying to like channel that kind of something is off about every frame. And this felt like a, a tour de force of trying to make that happen everywhere possible. Yeah, uh, <laughs> especially in that opening act, you know, in his, his like shitty apartment in the inner city. And there's just like, you know, dozens of people in the streets that like are, you know, committing acts of violence or on drugs or naked or, or whatever. And at first I was a little like uh, upset by that kind of portrayal of the inner city. I was like, this feels like some like kind of Reagan bullshit. Like we got a we got a <laughs> lockdown on crime kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And but it, like it's clearly just a representation of Bo's anxiety. Like his anxiety goes well beyond his mother to every aspect of his life where he's just like Bo is afraid. He's terrified of everything around him to the point where like he's, you know, can't even go across the street to the convenience store without absolutely losing his shit. Um, so I, I thought that was an interesting way to kind of just amp up the anxiety that he's going through. And like you mentioned, John with Bo is kind of an unreliable narrator. It feels like everything in this movie is just a representation of his inner turmoil and, you know, very unclear as to what's actually happening in a lot of this, but that's kind of, you know, part of the fun of the, the crazy ride of it. 
Yeah, I mean, in that way too, it's like almost like uh, it reminds me a little bit of Mulholland Drive in that it's, oh, it's interesting. deeply subconscious. Um, and it doesn't go as far as David Lynch has to make it into some sort of psychedelic. I mean, it is pretty psychedelic actually, but mm. it's not so, um, it's not as dreamlike as, as David Lynch. Um, yeah. But it still has this like, um, obviously what's reality, what's not reality. But honestly, that's kind of like besides the point. I'm sure people are going to try to deconstruct like, well, this is a dream, like this is a hallucination. But uh, I mean, uh, like burning, uh, Lee Chang Dong's burning. It's like, that doesn't matter. What matters mm -hmm. is like the ambigu ambiguity in this film. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think um, this dreamlike quality is definitely a through line. And um, yeah, I don't know what, what you guys think about that part. Yeah. Um, I, so having seen enough movies where things feel like they're a dream, uh, this one definitely, I think it, it, it is something that approaching anxiety and trying to represent it in a movie. I think about characters that are in like a Woody Allen film, um, where they yeah. just are <laughs> literally like nervous and shaking and talking to somebody about how they're, you know, they're neurotically obsessive about how somebody perceives them. And they talk about it a lot. Um, and I feel like the dream quality, the dream through line here was intended to very much immerse you in what somebody is feeling when they're doing that. Like, uh, none of us probably want to be accused of being a thief and have somebody be like, I'm going to call the police on you. Like, not in a Karen context, like in a legitimate, you're going to go to trial and you're going to be framed for something and Bo has that whole experience at the, the convenience store <laughs> when he's trying to frantically search for like nickels and dimes to pay up to the price of the dollar and like 59 cents or whatever it is. And as all of the people in the street are, are just, uh, just piling into his house because yeah. he left the door open. And the guy is like, I'm going to call the police if you don't give me a penny in the next like two seconds. And Bo is just like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. And he just like takes the penny from the take a penny tray and throws it in and runs. Um, but it, it is that maximalism that like, I kind of in my, my thoughts after seeing the movie, um, while all of it is so disorienting and nonsensical in frame to frame continuity, the overall emotion that exists within any anxiety, like filled scenario that Bo encounters, I felt was an empathetically breaching moment of the movie, like constantly pulling you closer and closer to Bo's fears. Because you're like, oh, no, I don't want that to happen. Like, oh, that's fucking terrible. Why would this? And every one of those little breadcrumbs just kind of gives you a little bit more interest to see, like, well, now Bo's in a new setting. Surely it can't be that bad. Like, when he gets hit by the car and stabbed by the birthday boy stabber, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is the legitimate news name that's given to this man. Um, that was so like when they show the stabber on the news and they're giving yeah. a, you know, a serious news that. report about the birthday boy stabber. And then he, <laughs> when he actually encounters him in the street is such a funny, uh, yeah. just callback. <laughs> and he wakes up in that new bed and it's just a nice room and he's kind of got, you know, a button to press this for anything you need. And you're like, oh, he's going to get, he landed with some really nice people. Oh, my first thought was, why is he not in a hospital? This oh, yeah, is there's definitely that, too. There's there's like I was like, oh, this is one of those under the table insurance things. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, 
But then when the mom came in and was kind of like comforting him and uh, like the dad came, Nathan Lane walks in, you got Amy Ryan and Nathan Lane together. And Nathan Lane is like, hey, champ, you really took a hit. We thought you weren't going to wake up for whatever. And you're like, <laughs> maybe Bo will be able to relax here. But then like these layers slowly start to peel off and reveal the nightmare that this other scenario is. Yeah, like the first two parts, like they've also felt like kind of a more of a social commentary um, talking about what seemed like the opioid crisis, um, talking about TikTok and how, or more broadly social media, how it's affecting kids, um, family structure. It's like the first two parts at least are, are like kind of the social and then the last two parts are more of the personal. Yeah, that's interesting. I love it. His apartment, it's in this like, you know, old rundown apartment building over a strip club called Erectus Ejectus. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I laughed at that in the theater and like no one else caught that for some reason. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> I love the sign work in this I movie too. It's just great. It's but chicken fat is what it's called. What the uh, I think that you sent an article over Dixon about that. Um, just trying to jam pack and expand on this world reminded me so much of like sorry to bother you's headlines and like yeah, the yeah. other things that are in the background of that movie. Um, like the graffiti on the wall of his apartment is hilarious. So much, <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's a picture of, of a dude like with a super long dick jerking off into his mouth. And it says, <laughs> don't mind if I do under it. It's like, what the fuck is going on in this place? Or the, the billboard outside of his place that said, uh, was it defund the pigs, stop corruption, betray your mother, live forever. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. I'm actually kind of curious. So we've identified there are four parts of it. And Gino, you talked about the latter two parts being way more personal. There is like this in the third sort of place that Bo finds himself. It's this real reflection on like his entire life and what it could be like if he actually persevered through the anxiety his mother instilled in him. Um, and you see like all of that unfold and then it's all taken back because we're on Bo's journey. But then I feel like the second part, it was like, the first part is all about his anxiety and building him up and showing us what he sees the city and his current life as. And then the second part in the suburbs felt like encountering other people that have different traumas and grief and anxiety and like what that does in that scenario, like the family that he's adopted by basically, mm -hmm. um, they've lost a son and nobody goes in that room. And one of Dixon's like favorite gags, my favorite gag too, is there <laughs> whatever their daughter is like, it's not like we have another room that has a full bed in it that somebody could sleep in. And Amy Ryan is just like, that's exactly what it's not like. It's <laughs> definitely not like that. <laughs> and they're like putting a piece of a puzzle together with their son's face on it. <laughs> a bunch of other stuff, but like they're, they're clearly grief stricken and they even house the buddy from their son's like, I guess troop who well, they don't really house him. They just let him park let his him van park in their yard. Yeah, and, and he may or may not have been the guy who probably killed their son. He like murdered a whole troop of guys. Just, uh. And they were like, he's a hero <laughs> the whole time. I love that they say that their son was in like the 82nd airborne or something in Caracas. And like, wait a minute, what the <laughs> fuck? Like when, when was the U S military in Venezuela? Other than like the secret coups that we've done. Yeah, like, <laughs> there was like, very proud saying he was in Caracas like they would never the military would never have acknowledged that at, <laughs> at all but, but that was pretty funny yeah they're just so matter of fact about it but yeah hmm. um and then the fourth I don't know what the fourth is about like so the uh, this is kind of me postulating the first is all about bow and anxiety and establishing that general fear of it is that kind of Reagan era 
sort of like there's crime in the streets everywhere. Anybody could get you. Um, two is like suburban life and grief and trauma. Three is like your life and time, seeing what your life would be like in different paths, uh, which has a beautiful animated sequence. Um, and then the fourth one is reconciliation. I don't know if it definitely has not reconciliation. <laughs> uh, I mean, reconciliation yeah. by, uh, by trial. <laughs> Somebody's being reconciled. <laughs> and it's, uh, <laughs> it's not for the better. Um, yeah, I don't mm, know. It's hard, hard one. It, yeah. Yeah, I think Maybe that generally... Like confrontation? It is. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it is like confrontation. Three is like the dream state of what your life could be like. And four is the actionable regret of taking that path or trying to take that path. And then realizing that you or thinking you have betrayed um, somebody who's been very close to you or has like had a really tight grip on you. That's kind of what I perceived it as anyway, because... The end of this movie, and we're getting into spoilers, like, if you're listening to an hour-long podcast and you haven't seen a three-hour movie, like, just go, 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 go see watch, the three-hour one right now. Yeah. Come back and add it on as the fourth here. Hard to spoil, um, though. <laughs> but, like, the end sequence, it felt like it was revealed, it was revealed, that Bo's mother had been alive all along, despite her being dead and him seeing a body in the casket. It was actually the housekeeper who mm-hmm. sacrificed herself for her family's money. Um... And then it had this whole the game twist. Sorry if I'm spoiling the game for everybody, but that's a, a like 30 year old movie almost um, where it was like, oh, his mother had paid all these other people on his entire journey to test him in different ways. Maybe Ryan's character even writes on a napkin. Stop incriminating yourself uh-huh. um, <laughs> as he just sort of embraces other lifestyles that don't have anything to do with his mom. Uh, and I just felt like that was that big thing where I always think about my parents and what they would want me to do. And like that little voice is just always ingrained in my head because I grew up, you know, spent 18 years at the least for my side uh, under the same roof, having them tell me that everything is going to kill you or you should be afraid of this or that. And you should definitely watch out for these kind of people and this situation never get tattoos. And I still haven't like (laughs) I have high anxiety around those things. And the fourth piece of this movie really felt like Bo trying to reconcile that he had made an action that was outside the boundaries of his comfort zone. And even in the moment, he, the whole, his whole thing, Ari Aster admits it in his criterion closet pick. Bo is afraid is a story of a man who needs to come. And, (laughs) (laughs) and Bo has sex for the first time. And he, uh, immediately the woman he's having sex with, she dies, which is the subversion because he had always been told he would be the one who dies when he comes. He was told it would be a genetic thing. Yeah, he's uh, told that his father died while coming into his mother yeah. at the moment of conception. Same with his grandfather. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just such a fucked up thing to tell your kid. Tried and true tradition to, to die inside of someone, I suppose. But yeah. Um, and then we get a whole thing where like his dad may be alive and we're never really sure if it is his dad or not. They, he starts assuming it is. The guy just kind of like tells him, hey, you know, I'm... Uh, I knew your dad. I saw him when he was alive. He's not dead. Um, but even that, like, it doesn't stop to talk about it. And that's, I think, also main criticism people have given it is it never really, like, resolves anything it opens. But I feel like I think that's, that's okay. kind of the point. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. Um, and the ending is just this really powerful, unresolved conflict. And, like, I think that's that's kind of the point of it, right? It's just, like, 
these relationships are weird and they're hard to navigate and they create anxiety and like maybe there's not a solution to that right like even if you have a heart to heart with your mom and you try to go through all of the the things that have been creating anxiety or tension in the relationship it may just still be that you know you can't see things from her perspective and she she can't see things from yours and it's just you know hard to to square that circle yeah and i think also like it's talking a lot about um the paradox of love itself and that um when you want to love someone especially the mother in this case it's like it's so much that it's it's just unbearable um but at the same time you're trying to please her and then like you want to come off as impolite and then there's all this like inner tension of like i want to be with my mother but i don't at the same time so it's like it's always in this flux and also because of the asymmetry between the love of Bo and her, his mother it creates another layer of of uh, tension as well so this whole movie is just dealing with this asymmetry and this tension and this paradox which is also just apparent apparent in normal life yeah thinking about like um how there's like so many moments at the end too where he has multiple confrontations with his mother when you think about it like first he has a confrontation with her death like he's staring at her corpse and he's pretty convinced it's not her that at least he says later her, her headless convinced. corpse yeah her headless <laughs> corpse open <laughs> casket funeral for a headless corpse i, I love the the plaque on the like dented floor <laughs> that says like here's where yeah, the chandelier yeah. fell and broke her head <laughs> here's where it happened here's where bill Hader found her yeah. <laughs> um yeah and then later he has this other confrontation with her where he finds out she's not dead that's when he's had sex with uh his his love interest i can't remember what her name is um, uh elaine I elaine think. yeah something like that um yes right. and uh he's like uh, they can, she has two servants come in and carry elaine's frozen corpse into like a back room which is also really funny like i was like is that like a whole <laughs> robot she had built just so that she could die right there is that actually a person at that point? It's just like, it's dream fever, dream yeah. logic. Or is she not dead? And she's just being <laughs> yeah. very, very still. She was, she's the, <laughs> yeah. She's paid to, for her skills to be still. <laughs> um, but he has that confrontation with his mother immediately after because he had sex in her bed. And that is that like subconscious guilt of like, I'm doing something that my parent wouldn't approve of had warned me against. And I'm doing it in the most sacred place that I could think of for my parent. And then later, he has his mother come and continue to confront him using the therapist who comes in. And that's where, that's when I say, like when I say reconciliation, I think there's like a trial, basically a truth uh, and reconciliation that's happening where he's reconciling all these pieces of betrayal to his mom. It starts with that, that billboard I alluded to that says betray your mother live forever. Um, <laughs> at the very end, once he has betrayed her and started to self-actualize, he immediately implodes like shuts back down and there's so many different ways that that happens all of the different layers that come together with it and it culminates in him like choking her like he's so overwhelmed well we didn't even talk about him discovering his dick father but uh <laughs> just like gets so overwhelmed and chokes her and she falls and like breaks something and then suddenly he's out on a boat riding in the starry night sky and it's like this moment of respite so calm and serene and free and then it immediately enters into a dark arena where everybody's watching the final trial against his mother. 
and he loses and he fucking just eats it. Um, it's yeah, and that wild. like uh, the dark starry night in the water is shown a couple of times earlier in the movie as he's like waking yes. up from being unconscious and so, or falling into unconsciousness. And so I think that's meant to represent his subconscious mind and like his deepest fears that he is going through. And so, you know, it gets this absurd scene where his mom and Richard Kind, her her lawyer, are like prosecuting a case against him as being a bad son. And he has like a, a cheap TV lawyer who, you know, only makes it like halfway through the trial. And, um, you know, he's just so like he's just so um, stressed out and flabbergasted that he's unable to really put on a, a reasonable defense for himself. And um, that that feels like kind of the just the representation of all that anxiety, what has been driving his behavior throughout the movie. Um, but yeah, when that boat flips over at the end and the credits roll over it and you see it shake for a little bit and then just stop, that's a big gut punch there. Yeah, it's so deeply upsetting. But there, were there muffled screams too or no? Did I imagine that part because Ari Aster put it in my brain? Uh, I don't remember. There okay. might have been. There's muffled screams in the beginning of like the birth sequence, um, which actually like feels so much like a horror film. Like, mm -hmm. the rest of the film is terrifying, of course, but there's no real jump scares. But strangely enough, like, the intro is, like, just absolutely terrifying. Um, yeah. Like, it's the, like a POV that, birth sequence. The, yeah, and, like, that, the Normandy of that, uh, that sub-bass, like, bursting through the IMAX screen, it's like, whoa, this is, like, like what is going on here? Um, almost like a Dune intro in a way. <laughs> yeah. That, and that, that was also, like, such a big... It's a good kickoff for the anxiety because you take so much time to adjust to figure out what's going on. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, uh, it's blurry. What could it be? I've seen enough like um, movies that have kind of an opening scene where, you know, you got a faint kind of tinnitus hum and the blur. Um, th most of those end up being somebody's on a plane and it's going down. Fuck, get the fuck out. And like, there's just explosions or some kind of action battle. But here I was literally like, what the fuck could this possibly be? Oh, yes, he's being born. And then it immediately kicked into the tension where they're like, he's not breathing. And I was like, oh, fuck, we're all dying in this theater. <laughs> and, uh, and they're trying to like pump and it's just loud and muffled and you have no idea what any sound is, but you can hear like the mom asking like, why, what's going on? What is this? It's already like the baby is just being infused with anxiety. <laughs> Bo is becoming um, like the worst superhero ever <laughs> a man who is crippling defeat. I don't know is his name, I guess, or something, but um, yeah, it, that scene was fucking wild. I forgot that that happened because of the three hours. <laughs> we really grew up yeah. with Bo. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Uh, I wanted to ask Dixon, uh, I saw you like you had a 3.5 as your first rating. And yeah. then I think on your second watch, you changed to a four. Is there, is there a reason why? Um, I think like the first time that I watched it, it's just so, it feels, uh, rather incongruent, you know, there's just so much stuff going on at once. And I was like, oh, there's some stuff in here that's really great and really powerful. And, but it like felt like it drags a little bit in parts. And, um, I guess I was just kind of like trying to figure out how it all pieces together and was having trouble, having some trouble doing that. And on a second watch, I enjoyed it more. I think knowing where it goes, I was able to appreciate what the movie was doing in the earlier sequences as it's getting toward its finish so right fair points yeah i've only seen it once so far um but i definitely enjoyed it for sure 
Yeah, I can't stop thinking about it. I got to go see it again sometime soon. I just have the one. I got to find three more hours. <laughs> I imagine <laughs> that knowing you, John, that that won't be hard for you to find because when you find a movie that you really like like this, you you tend make to make time. time to rewatch it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll go to like the screenings at like 1150 at night or something. <laughs> <laughs> Get out at 3 a.m. Me and my thoughts and bro. <laughs> That'll be a fun time. Yeah. I also um know a friend who took edibles and saw this oh that sounds awful and he oh, said he wow. had the worst <laughs> fucking time oh yeah <laughs> he was like i i definitely want to watch it again when it comes to like the t like a streaming service or something he's like but i'm not going to go back to a theater now i can't do it i, I made i made my mistake <laughs> so he's been like warning everybody he's like you can go see it but like don't do edibles and Joaquin Phoenix is on the record as saying, don't do shrooms for sure. Oh, um, yeah. which like, I don't know. I don't know who's tempting fate out there <laughs> going to see an Ari Aster film on that. But uh, let us know how I it goes. I guess. seeing it <laughs> like on a on like a little tiny screen instead of a IMAX screen, because like without that uh, IMAX screen, I, I feel like you're missing out on so much, even though it, it doesn't. I mean, when you think back, like it doesn't really take advantage of like the um the, like the how big the screen is really like unlike a film like dune as i keep mentioning but um it helps you I notice the details you don't get, more yeah. yeah and i get you maybe might not get the anxiety bit as much if you're just watching on like a like a computer screen or like an iphone screen um so yeah i wonder that what that would be like watching on just a tiny screen it's actually like uh, fun to think about the the IMAX version being because I was thinking about that, too, when I was watching it, um, that I'm used to IMAX movies being big, dumb and loud. Not that Dune is big and dumb, but it's they're all loud. It's big. Uh, it's big. Um, <laughs> it's big. The worm, that worm shy halud is big. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, like when I saw when we were we were going to go see it in IMAX, I was like, the fuck's going to be different about an Ari Aster film in IMAX. Um, is IMAX is the best way to see every movie. If you well, can. I mean, the yeah. biggest screen is obviously mm. the best screen. That is just, that's just math. Everybody that's basic mm -hmm. math out there. Um, but having certain scenes where Bo is the entire presence encompassing the screen felt claustrophobic and they kind of compelled you into that anxiety. Yeah. So yeah, like, like Gino, what you're talking about, it makes perfect sense that people if you watch it on like a smaller screen you're not going to get that same kind of mesmerization and that yeah. kind of a direct contact effect. of anxiety with it you will probably be like looking away or you're carrying your phone somewhere or david lynch is crying behind you yeah um <laughs> you know uh, especially like with the slow like pan into walking phoenix's face in a lot of scenes where basically like you're imagining the other person's reaction i'm thinking about like when he's the calling phone call. his mother yeah exactly yeah it's like such a long take and like you know exactly like how she feels on the other side but you just feel like the burning emotion from walking phoenix's performance and then there's also the the scene where he's calling the ups driver <laughs> and yeah. uh that's it's it's like both a little funny but mostly terrifying and you're imagining half of the conversation, but you're totally feeling like all the anxiety and all the fear he has in his in, in his mind. So without that IMAX experience, I think I mean you might be just looking off like at a notification on your screen or like 
off in the distance. So without like being just totally locked in, I think you're missing a little bit at least. And I'm thinking about that David Lynch, like you're not watching a movie on a fucking like iPhone screen. Yeah. <laughs> quote. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm sure it's still a great experience in a regular theater. Um, but you definitely want, you definitely want to be locked into this and not distracted for sure. Um, I think, uh, Matthew, the phone call you mentioned between him and his mother, I think that's a, um, one of the things I want to talk about is I think Bo is like, Bo is a shithead and Ari Aster knows that. And I, I think it's like, you know, I've heard people kind of complain about this and be like, oh, it's just like somebody bitching about his mom and like, um, you know, blaming his parents for everything. And I, I don't think that's what this is like the, it's definitely that to some degree, but I think the Ari Aster puts blame on both the son and the mother in this situation. And obviously the mother is too controlling and too quick to spoon out guilt on her son for every little thing. But like, you know, Bo needs to get his head out of his ass and live his fucking life and stop being so anxious and, uh, you know, petrified at, at everything around him. And I think, uh, the movie brings that across and it's not trying to say that like, Oh, this guy's life, would have been great like this, you know, act three fairy tale, if not for his controlling mother. I think it's saying that, like, he is incapable of living that life because he is getting in his own way and he's not allowing himself to kind of achieve his full potential. So I think it's interesting to look at Bo versus his mother and see, like, you know, there's plenty of blame to go around here on why this relationship is as shitty as it is. Yeah. Even the end sequence, finding out that his mother has paid everybody, they're all employees of her, uh, of, like set him up. That fits perfectly into him having a narcissism of being like, my mother would go to these lengths to like sabotage me. This is exactly what she would do. And I knew it all along. She was paying Elaine and she was paying all these other people to do the things that they were doing. Um, it's It's fascinating to see him reflect on that and not push past it. Like he just falls back into it harder after he sees the play. Cause the play is kind of this, Hey Bo, don't be, don't be a shithead. Like here's the things you can yeah. do. You can raise like honest, humble boys and have this like village life and know everybody in this community. And it was like all of the things he kind of subconsciously wanted coming together and he was sitting around with like this community and enjoying the play and then seeing himself in it. One of those moments where like it beautifully represents it's art within art where it's, they're putting on just a grand performance. I would fucking love to see that stage play. Oh yeah. It was really fascinating. This set was so cool with the rotating trees representing the different seasons. Yeah. And, uh, that yeah, was incredible. Was yeah. So awesome. Um, yeah. And then even that is like cut down by his real life coming back to get him in the form of that ex military dude <laughs> running through the forest with a machine gun and showing up and just gunning everybody down. <laughs> I did when he first wakes up in that bed and he's like, what is this thing on my foot? And Nathan Lane's like, that's my little assistant health, health monitor. It's like that horse shit. That is a tracker. When is this going to come back into play? Then <laughs> it does in a, a very entertaining fashion. Yeah. Talk about uh, like Hitchcock's ticking time bomb. Um, <laughs> we saw that guy, uh, that military dude, I don't know what his name is, Doug or something. And he's just going crazy. 
like in the back of any sequence that is at that suburban it's like house. army crawling and diving into the pool for no reason. Yeah, like yeah. running down a ramp and then just dropping into the pool. Like uh, <laughs> it was great background comedy and very unsettling. And then when they unleash him on uh, Bo after that very traumatizing paint sequence, um, I was just like, okay, when is he actually going to find Bo? And the moment Bo found that theater crew, I was like, this is the place where there's going to be a massacre. Like, <laughs> holy shit, when's this going to happen? And I started to get my own anxiety. I was like, oh, fuck, no, I don't want to. There was like the pregnant mother sitting next to him and all these really friendly people saying hi. And I was like, oh, no, I don't <laughs> want this. I did love that that sequence in, in the woods where, you know, he, it's like he, he meets this theater troupe that just, puts on performances in the woods for no one, I guess, just for themselves. And like any Renaissance troupe. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and he gets there and one of the guys is like, Hey, do you want a costume? We try to blur the line between the audience and the players. And so he's, he gets a costume and he's sitting in the audience and like, you know, he's watching the play and then all of a sudden he is in the play and you see this massive, uh, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 minute animated sequence play out. That's just some of the best animation that I've seen in a really long time. Uh, I just thought, it was really cool to see the care and the detail that they put into making that just really pop off the screen and look absolutely beautiful. Um, and it, you know, I, th I thought it was the most interesting representation I've ever seen of like seeing art in front of you and identifying with it and seeing bits of yourself inside it. And, you know, to the point where they're actually showing him go through what the main character in the play was going through and having this emotional moment where he's kind of realizing oh man, like maybe my life could be different and then snaps out of it right back to reality. And he's just like standing up in the audience and the, you know, the woman next to him was like, are you okay? Like, what's, what's going on? Sit down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, coming back to Dixon's point about um, whether or not Bo is kind of like in control of his fate and whether or not he should like pull his head out of his ass and get his life together. I, I it's hard. I, I think my opinion on this point is that, um, the mother is like just so controlling. She controls like her, his therapist. He controls like it, it seems like yeah. the mother is also like some sort of like uh, pharmaceutical, um, like drug lord. And then uh, the last point here is like she also owns yep. what looks like rehab centers. I think, um, which I think Bo is living inside. I, I if I'm not wrong here, she, he's living in one of their buildings. Yeah, um, but yeah, like one of these like rehabilitation centers where. Like he's living, so like everything is like within his mother's fingertips. For Bo to pull himself together, it would take so much effort. It it, it would be hard to blame him for the way he is. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Uh, there's definitely a lot there where like she has never kind of really let him be his own person and you know let go of her her grip. Even though he's in a different city than she is, like she's doing everything she can to maintain her her power over him. Hence the whole, like the phone call that he has with her. There's very clearly, she's got like a good grip on him and how he feels. Cause his, another thing was like Joaquin Phoenix did a great job with his body language in any one scene. Mm -hmm. It was like, we saw him shift from, he was getting ready for the trip. He felt confident enough. Then his keys went missing and he started to kind of panic and he called his mom and was like, well, this could be, you can kind of tell like there's a range of emotion he's going through where he's like, well, she'll understand, but she also, he also was like, I know that she won't. So you can see he was getting a little tense. And then the moment that he tells her, I can't make it. And his mom's voice, you even just hear his mom's voice completely change where she's like, 
okay, I understand. You do what's right. And mm. he's like, well, just tell yeah. me what's right. Like, she takes his whole agency away immediately. And he's like, just tell me what I should do. What, what makes you happy? And that's just like an abuse victim. And that, that's kind of the typical behavior of somebody who has to endure like a narcissistic parent and really can't get away from that. Um, so yeah, it becomes like harder and harder for him to get through, but it is very much about him trying to self-actualize. Like that's the whole journey of the movie is him coming mm. to terms with his mother's death and trying to self-actualize into being an individual. And it doesn't go well for him um, just because of the trauma he's already experienced and the anxiety he already suffers from. Yeah. And it, Matthew, maybe where I'm coming at this from a different angle is, is I guess I just see this as being such a, um, just like a subjective movie where like you're seeing everything from Bo's perspective that like, I think he yeah. is exaggerating in his own mind, the power that his mother has over him just because it's so, right. it's so absurd, right? The, the lengths that she would go to like, you know, control his therapist and ev everything around him, you know, all the people that he encounters on this, you know, like he happens to get hit by a truck that is being driven by people that are on her payroll and they keep him imprisoned in their house. Like all, all this stuff. I'm like, I, I don't think we're seeing what's actually happening to Bo. I think we're seeing how he's perceiving yeah. the world. And like Ari Aster, I don't, I don't think is letting him off the hook for his own fault in his problems because he's not able to kind of like, um, you know, shed himself of this idea that he is, uh, you know, in the in the full, you know, manipulation of his mother. Yeah, and plus on top of that is the unreliable narr narrator aspect, which compounds all what you just said. It's intended to be a tragic story, and it, it's there's no way around it. I don't even know that there is like a comeuppance that he deserves or gets in the scheme no, of the things that yeah, are going on. Yeah, I don't think so. He literally just collapses, like implodes under the weight of his own delusion that he's finally gotten to this point where he's so anxiously fueled by his mother's relationship with him that when she dies, he's effectively lost, which I guess is that starry night sky sort of segment too is it's a bit of like, you're just out in the dark alone. Um, your mom's not here anymore. What are you going to do? And the, the only two options are you can try to live a normal life or you can just, you know, lay down and die. And the trial is what kind of separates that, it seems. And mm. he sort of, to me, I read a lot into it being the end is a suicide, which it just fits into the tragedy of it, where he really can't live without his mom, but he can't live with her. And he has no idea how to come to terms with any of the things he's done, because it's kind of like a kid who's gone off to college. He's gotten into a lot of trouble the moment that she died. He's been part of another family and experienced a whole other life with them. He's seen a future where he has kids and grows up and does all the things his mom said he never should do or could do. And then he's actually physically done the things his mom said he never should do or could do. And then had this whole traumatic backslide after where he just mentally collapses. Um, and it, uh, I have no idea how to reconcile it for his character. I have no idea how to feel about his character other than just, in general, sad that there are people who legitimately go through that and have no idea how to pull themselves out. There's no way to do it. They're so convinced that they can't. Um, it's just brutal, which we turned to each other at the end of the movie, Dixon. We were just like bleak. Yeah. Like, just don't even <laughs> know. Shit, <laughs> yeah. We have to talk about the dick. Monster wait, wait, I was going to say, we have to talk right? about the big dick in the room. I right? to mention yeah. That. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Bo has this recurring dream throughout the movie that that he has. There's like another version of himself, like a twin, maybe when he's a kid, and the kid keeps asking, like, "Where's dad? Where's dad?" And the mom gets fed up with him and puts him up in the attic and never lets him come back down again. He thinks this is a a dream that he's had. Um, that sequence, by the way, reminded me a lot of Hereditary. The way they show that room with the attic stairs, it's kind of like a disembodied. It looks like a model. Like it, it reminded me a lot of Hereditary and some of the way those scenes are shot, which I thought was cool. But um, you know, so he has this dream, and then finally, you know, in the final act, when he goes to confront his mother and and she's not dead, and they're having this conversation, and she's like, "All right, why don't you just fucking go up there then and, and see what's there?" And uh, turns out there's a grown Joaquin Phoenix sitting next to a massive dick monster with like pincers. Um, yeah, just yeah, like Starship Trooper bug <laughs> arms. Yeah. <laughs> um, just in time for a military dude to show up and get spiked in the head. <laughs> yeah. Just like burst through the window, shooting wildly into the dick bag and like all of the, <laughs> all the blood and everything. And then he just gets his fucking skull knocked in yeah. and you're like, Oh Jesus. And there's a face on the dick head, which is just very upsetting. <laughs> like, Bo, like never stops yeah. screaming about it. It's man. <laughs> Do you think, like, do you guys think yes. there's any sort of symbolism there that, like, other than the obvious, like, is there anything there that, like, you know, I, I, I was just more shocked by it than anything. And, like, maybe this is just this, Im- this imposing dick is just, like, the the shadow that his father has cast upon his life that he has never, you know, he's always been curious about and has never been able to know his father or have that, um, you know, figure in his life. But um, I'm curious as to what you guys thought about that you know because he stumbles down the stairs and she's like that's your father yeah and like wait a minute what the, the giant penis in the attic was <laughs> yeah. your father yeah. <laughs> what keeps popping up in uh online reviews is like the edible complex part of this movie um mm-hmm. that there is something to do with like walking phoenix being like in love with his mother and then his mother being in love with him and then it, it seems like there's something to do with like his mother wanting to kind of keep him like in quotes, like pure, I suppose, might be one way of putting it. There's like one scene, if I could watch it a second time, there's a scene where like Bo is in the bathtub as a kid, and I think mm. his mother is like wearing like a bathing suit, mm. and then it, it cuts, and then she's like wearing a dress. So I don't know if like that's either me making things up or has something to do with the like sexual component of his development, but like when they're on the, the vacation on the cruise is, ship. It's like actually when they're at home, um, she's like washing him and then it cuts and then she's like wearing a dress. Oh, yeah. She's younger. She's like Elaine, isn't she? She looks kind of, I feel like she looks younger in that sequence. It's a different actor, but it's a different actor. Yeah. Yeah. She's also younger. Yeah. That's That's right. Um, And then I think the other thing is like the dick in the attic is like the mother's control of his, her own son's like sexuality. And, and, and now Bo is like confronted with the fact that. He didn't realize this until that moment he saw like the dick in the attic. Yeah. That's it's interesting being confronted by that in the attic and having it square like put away, being oppressed. Um, he's just rediscovering what both like his father and who what like what his sexuality could be. And I also interpreted it in a in a much more lowbrow way as his father is a giant dick. And, and he, that's why he left the family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and like then, then his mother was traumatized by his father leaving and told Bo all of these lies to keep him from ever leaving and keep him as close as possible 
and wanted to just control and and keep him in the her purview at all times. Um, I just figured that was part of her obsessiveness pointing to that. But also we see like the bow that's in the attic is so ragged and tattered. Like he's kind of got a deadbeat aesthetic. And I interpreted that too, as like, this is what his mother envisions. She's protecting him from becoming is like this Mm. deadbeat in the corner or something. Um, He doesn't really have too much time to talk to other Bo uh, before he's like pulled back down and still freaking out about everything. Um, but yeah, that, uh, that's good. Good thoughts, Gino. Like, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Do you think the dick scene was pulled off well or, or cause like for me, it almost like pulled the, pulled me out of the movie a little bit. Um, for me, I think anything in this movie is pulled off well because I was already so far into the surreal experience that nothing can pull me out. It's like when I watch anything with Yodorowsky, the only way I'd be pulled out of it is like he does at the end of Holy Mountain where he pulls out and shows you that they have cameras and gear. And he's like, this is a film like, and he does it intentionally. But mm-hmm. like here in this movie, the only way that I really could have been pulled out is if there was a scene that was shot purely like a regular drama or like had more hereditary or Midsommar style to it. Um, that would, I would have been like, that's not the style this movie's supposed to be. When I saw that giant dick creature, I was like, wow, <laughs> that is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say it was pulled on well. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I thought it was, was an interesting scene. Like it, and it, I think it does a good job of kind of, you know, it, having the tension explode, right? Like there's this buildup of this long conversation between Bo and his mother. And it seems like it, you, like you, you have to go into that attic, right? Like it has to be there. And obviously like there has to be some sort of weird shit up there in order to kind of make, make the payoff work. And you know, it was fucking wild. I uh, was not expecting to see just a giant penis with claws yeah. in the attic. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a well done scene. And it definitely was like, you know, yeah, it kind of I can see what you're saying. It kind of pulls you out of maybe the the haze that the movie has you in when you're like, oh, my God, there's a giant practical effect dick monster in, in the corner. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it was well done. I think you you kind of had to have something like that in order to you know, kind of resolve the tension that that was there. It just, it needed to explode in some crazy thing. Yeah. Uh, Matthew, you mentioned that you wanted to talk about how this stacks up with Aster's other two films. Uh, Curious to hear what what you think there. That's a tough one because like, it's so different from Hereditary and Midsommar. This is not like a linear narrative like those other two. it's just like completely brand new and it's and it's still like co- totally Ari Aster's style, but uh, it's hard to try to rank them. But at least like my personal favorites, I can say that probably Midsommar's my favorite and then Hereditary. And then this one is like, I don't know if it like floats between the rank one and rank two, maybe it's in third place, maybe with some more thinking I'll I'll know. And as you both know, like, like movie rankings in your own head change over time. So yeah. Yep. Maybe yeah. It's it'll, it'll ripen. I'm sure. But um, right now I'm like maybe like I'll cautiously cautiously say it's like a third place for me. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Um, I I absolutely loved both Hereditary and, and Midsummer, and I, I think it's hard for me to choose between those two. Um, I I really liked Bo's Afraid a lot. I think 
it's possible that in time it could be thought of as Astor's masterpiece because it is so unique and fascinating and different than anything that I have ever seen. And so he's definitely, it feels like he's kind of breaking new ground with this, um, you know, taking a lot of risks that like are not for everybody for sure. Um, I think, uh, you know, you made a point earlier, Matthew, about uh, Astor maybe not investing too much in his characters in any of his films. I actually would disagree with that. I think that Tony Collette's character and Florence Pugh's character are mm. really well built and and have a lot going on and and are really fascinating characters. And I think that's why those movies really stuck with me are those two characters and how they, um, you know, kind of drive the those movies. And I think Bo is so passive that it's harder. It's hard for him to have that level of, of impact on it. Um, it almost feels like his mother is, you know, kind of having, but that, I mean, that's kind of the point of the movie, right? So like, I'm not, I really can't criticize the movie. I think it's doing exactly what it's trying to do. I've liked it a lot, but I do think I prefer his two previous films. Yeah. Um, well, I, I really liked Bo is Afraid. So Bo is Afraid actually is my first and then Midsommar is figured, my second yeah. and Hereditary is my third. Right. Part of it is more of, I just already have grievances with Hereditary. I still love a lot of the style in Hereditary, but the end, we've been over this. The end has mm -hmm. like an exposition dump that I'm not a fan of. Some other people brought some recent things to light that I was like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, that kind of, but no, I'm not going to think too much you're, on you're it. You're wrong, John. Hereditary yeah, exactly. is great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Midsommar, I still haven't seen the director's cut of it, but I hear it's that it's significantly better than the theatrical um, cut. And the theatrical cut was great. Mm -hmm. So I'm already like, yeah, I'm on board for that. I'll watch that. But neither of those has i love my weird shit i love my surreal shit i love when a director really conjures those emotions and gives you that experience and they're like look not everything's gonna fucking make sense just go with it and i think that that's like a beautiful embodiment of film that's like shit that like fellini did so it's like yeah why not let's go with it i i love that when it's achievable and astor did it without compromise here i think uh, Scorsese's on record saying that this is going to be remembered much like Barry Lyndon was in, interesting and yeah. it would age in a similar way wow. I was like that's fascinating um, but uh, I don't know about all of that but I do know that it is my number one for Aster and I'm I'm excited to see what he does next I know that what he does next is not going to be anything like this I can assume um, I if, think he's going to have to make something more commercially viable. Next, yes. Unfortunately, yes. this yeah. was his Northman. Uh, <laughs> it's the exact opposite of the Northman. So um, it, I don't know. It's just yeah. wild. I, I love that this got made. I yes. like this cost $35 million to make um, a 24 produced it. Oftentimes they just distribute movies, you know, pick up independently made movies and push them out to theaters. They produced this from the start. And I, I love that they pour that much money into it and put that, put all that risk into it. Having said that, it bombed pretty hard at, at the box office. And I hope that they're able to recoup enough through this down the line that, you know, they're still able to operate as a company. Like I imagine that's a pretty big financial risk for them to not be able to, you know, see that come back. But we'll see. I don't know. You know, I could see this movie be something that turns out to be a big cult hit and, you know, down the line ends up making it back on streaming or uh, you know, a 24, you know, $50 Blu-rays and <laughs> things like that. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. You could see all the merchandising possibilities. I, I hate to talk about franchising and merchandising on yeah. something that is high, clearly high art, 
Um, but, A24 but, started selling like MW company merchandise on their website before the movie was released in theaters. Like, what the <laughs> fuck is this? Like, <laughs> I would love to see like a good night moon, but it's good night bow. And yeah. it's every page just has a bunch of anxiety in it. <laughs> trying to, to lull him to sleep. It'd be great. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure A24 will figure it out. They, they yeah. seem to have a keen sense of what they want to publish and how they want to do it. And I feel like they wouldn't let this go through without knowing that those risks is, exist. Having read that script being like, cause Astor's had that script for since before hereditary mm-hmm. and just been working on it. So yep. there has to have been somebody at a 24 who's like, this shit's going to be bonkers. You just got to make us this amount of money and we'll like start pooling some of it for you. And then we'll get you a budget approved. And there we go. Here's your contract. Um, but I don't know. I don't work for it. Have any of you seen, like, I think it's supposed to be based on like, a short film. Well, maybe not based on is not the right wording, but uh, there's a film called, a short film called Bo, I think Ari Aster made over a decade ago. Um, and then since this, like, script's been in the, in the backlog, but I'm curious if any of you had, like, a chance to see that short film. I haven't. I've heard great things about Astor's short films, and I haven't seen any of them. But I think they're fairly available, like oh, on okay. YouTube or or different things like that. So I, I, I need to seek those out and and check out his his short films from before Hereditary. Yeah, there's a couple really great good ones in there. Definitely recommend. Oh yeah, nice. I have a question for for both of y'all, and this is going to be a little bit more complicated to address, but, um. If you could watch an Ari Aster film directed by Ari Aster, let's just say it's that, but it has to be written by somebody else. Who would the person be that would write the movie Ari Aster would direct? I don't know if you're a oh, wow. writer in particular. But um, you had mentioned that there are some Kaufman vibes in this. I feel like Aster could direct the shit out of a Charlie Kaufman oh, movie pretty oh, well. But yeah. also, I love Charlie Kaufman as a director, and I, you know, I like that they write and direct their own things, but if, if, we're forcing a crossover here. I think that could be interesting. Yeah. Uh, the first person that comes to mind is like to show a Canadian director, uh, David Cronenberg. Um, if he could, I think if Ari Aster could di- direct a Cronenberg film, he could like pull in some of the high abstract parts and make them more tangible. I'm thinking about like crash here where it's like, it's pretty like, it's pretty out there, but I can see Ari Aster making it more, kind of like consumable for a mainstream audience um but still maintaining like that hybrid mix between like Cronenberg's very like again abstract and uh just generally weird vibe he gets from his films plus like Ari Aster's kind of existential horror aspect he has yeah yeah I also think it would be fascinating to see him direct Paul Schrader's script. Damn it. You took my pick. You <laughs> oh, son of a shit, bitch. Really? I was working up to it. <laughs> everything. Yeah, see, yeah, well, why, think, don't, why don't you talk about that? Then? Well, yeah, that's kind of what I thought about when I got out of this and I watched his criterion closet picks. He picked, um, uh, is it Mishima? The, mm-hmm. the four lives of Mishima or something like that. I can't remember the full title. Mishima life in four chapters. Life in four chapters. Um, and he was like, this is fucking fantastic. This is like Paul Schrader's best. I was like, Hey, wait a minute. What if Paul Schrader wrote a thing and he directed it? Because um, I think that Schrader has a great grasp on characters who are struggling with isolationism and extremism mm-hmm. and trying to balance how they interact with the world. And Astor has this great way of manifesting 
those feelings into physical interactions with other characters in a like non-dialogue based way. Just like the way that he frames certain shots and distances characters and does like blocking and like in hereditary, the people trying to like cast out the demon from the sun, like the ways that those scenes are done is this weird, surreal in a way it's kind of camp, but it conjures such a deeply unsettling feeling to bundle that with Schrader's sort of unhinged anti-heroes and uh just like regular deadbeats or whatever it, it would just be wild to see um, yeah and schrader also has a very minimalist uh approach to filmmaking and you know he's very influenced by robert brisson and aster you know this was one of the most maximalist things i've seen in a, in a long time and I, I think it would be interesting to see that kind of approach to one of his scripts um you know i mean taxi driver is kind of that way right where where uh scorsese is putting a lot more pizzazz into the filmmaking than exists in that script uh so yeah yeah well curious if anybody else out there has suggestions for who would be great to write an ari aster directed film then like let us know why not um it'd be be cool to hear uh but yeah is there anything else about Bo is afraid that we haven't talked about is there something that we're forgetting it's such a long movie so yeah, we didn't really mention the um, vacation sequence from when he was a teenager. That's right. Um, yeah. I thought that was a fun yeah. sequence, and it it kind of gives you more background into his relationship with his mother and how overpowering she is in his sexual life and and things like that. That um, you know, I think kind of helped to uh, flesh that relationship out a little bit. You saw the movie twice, Dixon. Did mm -hmm. they sleep in a room that has two beds, but they slept in the same bed? Or was it? Oh, I didn't notice if there's an extra. They definitely slept in the same bed. I know that. Yeah. I was just like, if there's another bed in that room, that says something <laughs> completely different about this relationship. I don't remember there being an extra bed in there, but yeah. maybe I just didn't notice it. Yeah. Gino, what did you think about that sequence? Um, well, I don't think there was an extra bed, at least. So, But okay. I, it seems like heavily implied there's some sort of... Well, there's we can establish there's definitely trauma, like trauma, and most of it's probably emotional. And then we don't know whether or not any of it's physical. Um, mm -hmm. But it's like there's some some subtle hints here and there. I think that hint towards that. But uh, I think Ari Aster keeps that kind of uh, ambiguous for us to kind of guess at whether or not there's that aspect. Yeah, this was the the trip where he meets Elaine for the first time and. He's like 15 and sleeping in the same bed as his mom. It's super weird. Yeah. And, and his mom is like talking to him in his most vulnerable state when they're sleeping in that bed. She's like giving him all of this. Like, you can talk to me about anything that you want to talk to, but also like, just like pumping him full of these ideas. And she's like, any girl would be lucky yeah. to have you. you know? Yeah. Like, just, and that's such okay. a weird kind of yeah. like, mom, I don't need that right now, please. Mm. It's, it's fine. She's um, like his like wingman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she's talking about, she notices Elaine and she's trying to encourage him to go talk to Elaine. But then later she looks heartbroken when Elaine comes in and is like, wait for me and gets pulled away by, I don't even know where to begin with Elaine's mom. Yeah. Elaine's mom was on another level of, uh, of abuse. <laughs> it's fucking weird. Well, yeah. Uh, 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 you know, Elaine had some thoughts on, on yes. her mom too. Yeah. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> um, yeah. That was also with the buffet sequence, right? Where we again start to see Bo's anxiety surface in other ways when <laughs> the entire time Elaine's like, what do you think about this food? And we just get each food looks disgusting 
it has mm. something wrong with it like the chocolate fondue fountain has like flies in it and some other shit <laughs> Uh, she's like what about rainbow cake he's like the colors give you cancer and then she's like what about liquid shit and just sticks her finger in the fondue and jams it down (laughs) and he's like what why would you do uh you know that scene actually reminded me of the worst person in the world just because there's that sequence where they're talking about how like what is it the collective sum of western guilt sat at the end of his bed Uh when his when that one character's (laughs) girlfriend was like telling him all the terrible things that happen no matter what he does I was like, this is that, this is that anxiety charged. Um, and just being like, I can't have any of these foods cause they have all this bad shit in it. And I know about everything's going to kill you. I can't even breathe air. <laughs> is this how you feel as a vegan, John? Is that how you feel when you approach a buffet? Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> what, yeah. I have like Terminator vision for all of the sad shit in all my food. <laughs> um, yeah. Was, was there another sequence that we're not, I'm not remembering? I I think like we talked about the four main so acts and then there's kind of flashbacks to that vacation sequence throughout. They're all just peppered yeah. in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, we didn't really talk about the paint sequence. Um, I want to talk emotionally mm. how everybody here felt about that paint sequence. Great, and how it felt escalated. great about it. Yeah, right, yeah. it was good. <laughs> 10 out of 10, would watch it again. So positive. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would love to hear Gino. How was that mini roller coaster of, um, let's not even talk about the paints mm. in, in general, but like that daughter's journey with Bo, I can't even remember her name. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, I think it was not to- their son. Uh, Tony. Tony. Yep. That Tony. Was that's right. Um, yeah. Um, that was like, I found Tony like such a annoying, like little brat character in the film. Um, she's clearly just like the bully, but then at the same time, like she's like you can somewhat empathize with the fact that she's part of this really dysfunctional family. Um, and then she has she's always like filming Bo and trying to like blackmail him somehow and then doing things. So like she's obviously a very mixed character, at least also morally speaking. Um, with the paint scene, um what to say about this one? I'm thinking, like, again, like, the first two parts, like, to me are a very social, com- like, a social commentary on the present moment. Um, so it seems to be addressing, like, something to do with, like, suicide and, and teens. Um, but uh, emotionally speaking, it definitely, like, was surprising, at least. But beyond that, I don't know how else to react. It's quite uh it's quite sudden at least so i'm kind of curious to what you two think as well yeah it almost feels like it's meant to shock the the viewer like the way that it changes so quickly and yeah i mean i think like tony is clearly completely neglected by her parents they don't give a shit about her they're just obsessed with their deceased son and they that's all they can really focus on and then she you know deals with that by like having some sort of weird relationship with the army guy out back unclear exactly what's going on there. And then like, you know, smoking weird shit with her friends and, uh, you know, threatening people and things like that. And then, you know, all of a sudden she drags Bo into this, into, you know, her brother's bedroom. And she, you know, first starts throwing the paint on the wall. She's like, we're going to fuck this up. And then she's like, no, I just want you to drink this paint with me and starts fucking chugging paint. You're like, Oh oh my God, this escalated so quickly. (laughs) This is the worst TikTok challenge I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, What happened to cinnamon? (laughs) Yeah. God damn it. Simpler times. (laughs) Harlem shake. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, for this scene, I was when she started chugging that paint. I think I mouthed "Mother of God." Uh, <laughs> it was just so shocking. But I also, right before this happened, we saw a few sequences where she took Bo. Oh God, that scene where she took Bo on a car ride, mm-hmm. and that was like a little brother trauma. Like it was like, did Bo have an older sibling that did this to him or something? Because it felt like she was like maybe shut his up, addict twin made yeah. him do that yeah. <laughs> she was like shut up you little brat and smoke this or i'm gonna blackmail you and i'm gonna blackmail you anyway no matter what you do and i was just like oh fuck man i've i've definitely like i've seen enough movies and psas to know this isn't gonna go anywhere good with her relationship with her brother quote unquote mm-hmm. and then when he saw that like security camera footage where it like goes forward to the end of the movie. It's like a Spaceballs gag. (laughs) Like it got all the way to like him getting to his mother's house and everything. Um, And then suddenly like you saw like a few frames of her coming in and getting him and then him on a boat doing something. And I was like, Oh fuck. Does he like murder her and try to hide her body? So the whole time that she was like getting fucked up on paint, I was like, boat going to try to cover this up. Like what's going to happen. And then the mom just like burst in. It's like, what the fuck did you do? Like, why would you do this? And, Starts giving like raw mouth to mouth on like what I assume is probably lead based paint. This is the kind of movie for that. Uh, <laughs> it's just like, oh my God, just run, Bo. I don't care. I like forgot about that. I was like, is the security cam footage just fucking with me? And then later I was like, no, it wasn't. Oh, fuck with the yeah. shit. I love it. A Bo like bursts through the glass door and starts sprinting yeah. into the woods. Then you hear Amy Ryan shout like, go get him. Like yeah. whatever. I forget what the army dude's name is, but she just yells at him to like, go get him. And then just that dude just like suits up and goes. Yeah. Also, we didn't, we talked a little bit about Nathan Lane, but I, I, I loved say, his yeah. performance in this movie. Like as the kind of nonchalant suburban dad trying to be cool. Like at one point there just is a football in his hand for no reason. Like I was like, <laughs> wait a minute, that wasn't there a second ago. And now it, is it was like <laughs> clearly just to you know kind of emphasize the traditional suburban aspect of this family that's kind of trying to make everything look okay on the outside where while everything is falling apart on on the inside but i you know it's like he's sport is every other word you know or sport buddy my dude my dude i yeah. love when he says my, my dude, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Brother. i've never not related to somebody so hard before <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he was, I he loved every time he's on screen. I was like, oh, he's, he's just killing it yeah. up there. Patty Lapone as the mother is fucking great. Mm-hmm. Like she's mm-hmm. so good. Agreed. Gina, do you have any other favorite performances, favorite characters in this? Um, I think really of, of course, Joaquin Phoenix. I'm, I'm still thinking about his performance. It's, it's really stuck with me. I think, um, he is just incredible. Like you think about his filmography and how he's like transformed into all these different characters from like. The master, even her, um, the Joker, and so on. Like he is, he is Bo in this film, and uh, I don't see him as any of his other characters. Unlike some actors, where I'm like, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced quite, quite yet. Like I'm still seeing you as like whatever you were before. So I think that that performance is just incredible. And I feel like we already all know what we would say about this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Um, Gina, would you recommend this movie? I would personally recommend this movie. I think it's uh, different in the lineup uh, for Ari Aster. And for that reason, I think it's worth watching. Also, um, I mean, for a three-hour film, it does not feel like a three-hour film. I barely checked my watch. And um, 
it really moves well. I mean, I think someone mentioned there's pacing issues, which I might agree with like, slightly. It does take kind of like a dip during the uh, the story section and the anime section. But um, I think like that considered, it's it's so easy to keep your attention throughout the entire film. There's just so much going on. It's just so rife for interpretation. And, um, and at least for me, it's like pretty relatable, I think. So uh, definitely recommend. Nice. Dixon? Yeah, I uh, definitely recommend this movie. I think, um, you know, it's possible that I am, am too low on this. I'm definitely going to watch it again before uh, the end of the year. And, um, you know, I liked it better on the second watch. I'm guessing I'll probably like it better again on the third watch. Um, just an incredible piece of filmmaking that is is fascinating, I think. And, like, I will... I will always think about this movie when my mom texts me and it's like, hey, you want to come up uh, this weekend? <laughs> like, <laughs> this is always going to be in my mind. Um, I think, so, like, really in the grand scheme of things, this movie is, like, if you want to distill it down to one thing, it's about the anxiety you experience when your mom asks you to come visit. And that happens, you know, every time. You know, yeah. it happens, like, five, six times a year with me. And, and I think, like... You know, I just feel like going home is such an infantilizing experience, like going home and sleeping in my childhood bedroom. And, you know, even though the room is different now and it's not the same bed and it's decorated differently and but it's still like you fall into old dynamics when you do that and go visit your parents and stay with them. And, um, you know, that's something that, you know, I always feel like, oh, man, like if I go home for like Christmas and I'm there for five, six yeah. days, I'm like, oh, man, like this is too much time. Like I, I've I've fallen back into this person that I, I feel like I've moved past, but I'm sinking back into who I was in, in high school and I want to like pull myself out of that. And so I, I think this movie is incredibly relatable for, um, you know, for me particularly with that. And um, yeah, definitely recommend people check it out. Nice. Yeah. Like if you tried, uh, if you think you're enlightened, then try going back home and <laughs> yeah. you're still enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I obviously would recommend this if it's at the top of my Aster deck. I'm like, hey, I'm going to recommend it. The main thing I've had problems with is recommending it to people that aren't into movies or have aren't into Ari Aster films because it's like, I feel like this is a unique enough experience that I want to recommend it to everyone. But the moment that I start to say that to somebody, they're like, well, what is it? And I'm like, okay, at some point I'm going to have to tell them it's three hours long and they're going to say, fuck off. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> but I was getting a haircut the other day and was pitching the barber on seeing it. I was like, yeah, it is the amalgamation of anxiety, like manifested physically. And it's like three hours of it, but it has like all these other elements to it. And by the end of it, she was like, that's fucking weird enough that I think I'd want to see that. That just sounds weird enough to see as something. And I was like, I feel like yeah. I did my job. I got it. <laughs> I was able to pitch somebody <laughs> not knowing their taste at all and somehow land it. <laughs> so actually, if, if I'm trying to recommend a movie to somebody, usually I don't mention runtime, even if it's super long, because I feel like people only complain about three hour movies when it's not a fucking comic book movie. And, you know, it's like whenever it's like, oh, Endgame is three and a half hours long and nobody cares. They just go see it. Right. And it sells through the roof or like the fucking justice league director's cut is four hours and nobody complains. Nobody blinks an eye, you know? And, and so like, it's only when like, you know, they're like, Oh, killers of the flower moon is three hours and 26 minutes. Oh my God. Why would Scorsese do that? Or, you know, or Bo is afraid is three hours. Oh, I'm never going to see that. It's like, you know, people don't have a problem with that if it's something that they like. And so I usually try to avoid commenting on runtimes to people and just hope they 
go see it and see what they think. The only yeah. reason that I, I bring up runtimes to people is because I'm like, look, the runtime is worth it. Set aside that time and go see it. Oh, because sure, yeah. when I've recommended it in the past mm. and it has that kind of runtime to it, if that person ends up not liking it, then they're like, you wasted this many hours of my goddamn life. And then I never... <laughs> I don't stop hearing about it for like, you know, years. Uh, like I still hear my dad still gives me shit about taking him to see tree of life. And I'm like, dude, it's a beautiful movie. <laughs> that was not even three. Yeah. It's not even at all, but he's just like, oh, God, yeah. why'd you do this to me? Well, I've cured most of my anxiety with this discussion. Now the only anxiety remaining is what did we not talk about? But it feels like we <laughs> Lots picked of over things, everything. But, so yeah. most uh, I'll tell here, it yeah. to my therapist. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that crazy ass house that his mom had with like the, the basement that it yeah, was. Yeah, quick opened. rapid fire yeah. it all out. Just go for everything. <laughs> his the therapist well. unsettling <laughs> smile as he sat on the couch looking at Bo, knowing he was telling all his secrets to his mom. <laughs> the cop that <laughs> the, the Cop, <laughs> the cop that's like, I don't want to have to do this the whole time. Uh, just Yeah, Joaquin Phoenix is naked. He's like, drop the weapon. And he's holding that little porcelain doll and drops it. He's like, don't make me fucking shoot you, man. Stop making me shoot you. Uh, fucking cops. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of full frontal nudity in this film, too. Yes, mm -hmm. there is. I bet Robert Eggers was jealous because he couldn't get it for the Northmen. <laughs> Studio said no. <laughs> <laughs> that scene of uh Bo just like getting run over by that truck and then like you see his dick like flop in the frame just yep <laughs> just everything about this movie bounces. Boz Lerman probably cried seeing this I assume he saw this and was yeah. like wept at its beauty <laughs> uh but yeah um well yeah that does it for us at Afterthoughts this episode is wrapping up if you haven't seen Bo's Afraid and you listen to all of this I think that we peppered it enough with as many weird, nonsensical things that you can still go see the movie and enjoy it all the same, even if you didn't see it before. Um, no matter what, it's going to confuse you just like it's confused us. So yes. <laughs> just let yourself go. Go do it. Find three hours, please. <laughs> um, but yeah, signing off from Afterthoughts, I am John Garcia and joining us is our special guest. Matthew, and I appreciate you guys having me on. And Matthew, uh, where can folks follow you? Where can folks find you on social media? Yeah, so um, at uh, Instagram, at Twitter, I'm Gino Hino. That's uh, the last three characters are three zeros. Oh, uh, Gino Hino was somehow was already taken. Somehow, I don't, I don't know who that could have bastard. Taken that. I update things every once in a while, but I also have a bunch of other projects ongoing that don't have a release date, but uh, just be following me there. I'll update it with uh, some cool new stuff. So Sweet. We're cool. going to put that in the uh, episode description as well, just so that folks can find it. Thanks again, Matthew, for joining us. And also thank you to our regular co-host here. He is Michael Dixon. Thanks for putting up with our bow shit. 